Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, starting this morning, and then for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to revisit something that we last looked at uh, a few years ago. We're going to look uh, at places in the Old Testament where someone meets God face to face. So this morning, um, I'm going to read one of the most well-known uh, of those events. I'm going to read from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 12. So you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from uh, Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he had led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as we just sang together from the psalm, we know that our hope is in you alone. And you know that there are some of us here who sing those words or who who hear them now and who believe them. You know that there are some of us here this morning who sing those words and hear them and don't necessarily believe that you are our only hope. There are some of us here who aren't sure. So, Father, what we ask now is what we always ask, and that is that you would meet us in the places where we find ourselves, where we are actually this morning, and that you would use this word that we have read and heard together that we're going to talk about together to lead us to the word that is incarnate, that bears our flesh, that you would show us our elder brother Jesus, who is seated with you right now, praying for people like us. Show us his grace and his goodness and his mercy and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
Well, I have uh, two uncles. My, uh, my dad is an only child, but my mom uh, has two siblings, both of whom are married, so I have these two uncles. Uh, my uncle Dave uh, is married to my mom's sister, and he taught my brother and I and all of the cousins, who are all boys, um, he taught us how to play chess, and that is a good indicator, I think, of who my uncle Dave is. Uh, I mean, he has a little bit of a sense of humor, but he is generally a pretty serious guy. Um, he's the one guy in my extended family that I talk uh, about theology with. And I have never once beaten my Uncle Dave at chess. Then there is my Uncle Butch. I mean, that name, that name right there says a lot. That is not his given name, of course. His given name is Orville Elmer Postalweight Jr. I don't know, uh, I don't know whose idea it was to start calling him Butch. It was probably his own idea, but I do know that in, in a perfect way, <laughs> He has fully inhabited that name his whole life. Uh, when all of the cousins were younger and we'd get together at Thanksgiving or something, we would hang on every last goofy word that came out of Uncle Butch's mouth. I don't think I ever heard him say anything serious to me until well into my adult life, and I loved him for it. He would mess with every last one of us relentlessly. He'd make up terrible nicknames for us. He would go out of his way to embarrass us in public. He would tell us the craziest stories. That was my Uncle Butch. And so I should have known better when one day he held up a deck of playing cards in front of me and he asked me if I wanted to learn how to play 52 pickup. Some of you obviously know what that game is, uh, but I, alas, did not know, and I thought to myself, what could be better than playing a card game with my crazy Uncle Butch? It's not going to be as challenging as a game of chess, I'm sure, with Uncle Dave, but it's going to be fun. So yes, Uncle Butch, teach me how to play 52 pickup, at which point he flung the deck of cards across the room and said, okay, pick them up. <laughs> the pitiless, merciless reality of 52 pickup. In one second, that room full of cards had become my responsibility. And that is precisely what happened to Moses. Out there on the far side of the wilderness, under the shadow of the great mountain, looking at the strangest thing he had ever seen in his life. Moses was not out looking for answers that morning. He was not searching for meaning. He was not trying to find some new direction in his life, but completely unbidden. God shows up, and in the time that it takes to say a sentence, Moses is saddled with a responsibility that no sane person would ever accept if they had a choice. I think if Moses had known what would happen that day, my guess is that he, he would have just walked by that burning bush and kept on his way and had a weird story to tell his family at night. But instead, this is what he hears, come and I will send you to Pharaoh. And even though he is immediately filled with dread, it is the best thing he's ever heard in his life. And it's good news for people like you and me too. So the story begins with us being told that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. That's pretty unassuming as stories begin. Here is a shepherd taking care of his family's flock of sheep. 
But when you consider that it is Moses who is doing this, the unassuming beginning becomes pretty remarkable because this is not where we would have expected to have seen Moses given the direction of his early years. It's helpful if you don't know the story already to know how it is that Moses has gotten into this place. Moses had been born decades and decades before this moment. He was born in Egypt during a very dangerous time for Hebrew boys to be born. Hundreds of years before he was born, God's people had settled into Egypt, and over those many years, they had prospered and they had grown into a significant nation. But Pharaoh had come to loathe them and fear them because he thought they might align with his enemies and take the land away from him. So he begins to slowly and methodically and brutally enslave the Hebrews. And even that is not enough for the callous Pharaoh who is ruling when Moses is born, so he insinuates a plan simply to kill all of the boys that are born to Hebrew women. And this is what leads to Moses famously being hidden in a basket and floated in a river shortly after he is born. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. He is adopted by her. He is raised in the royal family, and he grows into manhood. And one day, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He sees an Egyptian beating one of his people. And he thinks no one is looking. So he kills the Egyptian, and he buries the body. What he doesn't know, of course, is that someone did see him. He is exposed now as a murderer, and Pharaoh puts out the hit on him. And that's why Moses flees to Midian as a fugitive. So it's not just any old guy named Moses out there watching the flock. It's the Hebrew turned Egyptian, turned murderer, turned exile who is out there watching the flock. He's lived most of his adult life in hiding with a death on his conscience, living in the kind of obscurity that he would have never imagined given his auspicious upbringing. And now he has taken the flock to the west side of the wilderness of Midian near Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. And that's when he meets God face to face. (laughs) Of course, he doesn't know that that's what's going on at the time. What he sees is a bush that is burning and not being consumed. That is a strange sight. So he moves closer for a look, and as he does, God calls to him, shrouded in the obscurity of this otherworldly thing. Moses, Moses. And Moses answered, and God stops him in his tracks, and he says, you have to take your sandals off now, because you are on holy ground. And then God introduces himself. Moses, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And now Moses realizes what's happening. And I love the next line in the story. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, it is not hard to know what's happening here. Please understand, it's not the sight of the burning bush that makes Moses afraid. It's knowing that God is there that makes him afraid. 
Now, I don't know what Moses knew about this God at the time. I don't know if there was ever a time when he was being raised in the royal court, if he was allowed to learn much more about this God of the Hebrews. I don't know if he knew the intricacies and the beauty of the story of the relationship that this God had staked out with his people. I don't know if he knew that story decades and decades ago, and now he didn't remember it or it didn't seem relevant to him. I don't know any of that stuff, and none of it matters, because Moses' theology or his lack of theology is not relevant to the fear and the dread he is experiencing in that moment. It is simply God's presence right there that makes him afraid. And he is afraid because he is completely exposed. Not just that he is a murderer. Not just that he has been running for his entire adult life. There's that. But everything about him is exposed. Because that's what happens when anyone comes face to face with God and gets a sense for the terrible, ineffable weight of his being. His beauty, his perfection, his white-hot otherness. I think we all probably have a sense maybe for what that feels like on a smaller scale with other people. Maybe you have experienced something like this. Once uh, I got to uh, meet a writer uh, that I really admire. He's not well known, um, but what he has written has been meaningful to me. It's been meaningful to Allison, my wife, and I got to meet him. And when I met him, I was all shaky. And I could barely get two or three sentences out. And I wouldn't have gotten those out if I hadn't thought about them ahead of time and practiced them. I mean, it was weird and it was embarrassing. Why was I like that? You know, why was I uh, afraid of this guy? Because of his otherness to me. Because of the distance that I perceived between me and him and between my work and his. And if people like you and me can be reduced to that kind of shaky mumbling in the presence of another human being, then what in the world will happen when we come face to face with the terrible beauty of the God of everything? All of our self-justifications all of our deceptions, all of the behavior in our lives that we draw big circles around to say it's okay, all of our stupid, stupid pride and our callous contempt and our demeaning talk, all of that stuff becomes exposed in an instant, laid naked and bare and ugly. And when it happens, we do like Moses. We instinctively cover our faces in fear. Like old Paul on the flat of his back outside of Damascus. Like old Peter face down in a boat full of fish. We cover our faces in fear. And here's the truth, church. We do not make much progress in our Christian life if that does not happen to us. Not just once, but with some regularity. 
And for some of us, that moment will come unbidden like it did with Moses. I mean, Moses did not go out that morning thinking, you know what I want? I would like to be gutted with fear by the God of all things. He did not wake up that morning and do that, but graciously, that is what happened. And it could happen to us too. When we're out alone running errands or watching a movie or taking a walk or listening to some music, for others of us, it will happen when we're looking for it. Maybe while we are sitting in worship and we're singing about this God and who he is, or we hear some throwaway line in a boring sermon, or we hear a friend talk about their own walk with God or when we're reading scripture, or when we're praying in the middle of the night because we can't sleep. No matter how it comes, church, every one of us needs this. We need to have the truth of who we are and who God is clarified for us. We need to be exposed or else we will just keep running on a big tank of fake. John Calvin called this the whole sum of wisdom which is worth calling certain and true. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. So for Moses' part, it just happened. He is exposed. And the question is, what happens next? Well, God speaks and it is all of grace. He says, Moses, I, I have seen the affliction. I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt in slavery. I've heard their cry. Moses, I know what their sufferings are like. And it's hard to imagine for us to imagine what Moses must have been thinking in this moment when he heard this. Because he had seen the same stuff. He had seen the same things just a lifetime ago for him. Maybe hearing this reawakened the same feelings he had on that fateful day when he tried to take this thing into his own hands and he killed a man. And then God tells him, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here in this place talking to you. I have come down to deliver them. I will bring them up out of the land and into the land of promise. The oppression, Moses, the suffering, the affliction, it's all going to end because I'm going to deliver them. And man, I'm sure Moses is thinking, this is the most astounding thing that I have ever heard in my life. God is going to deliver his people. He has come down just to deliver his people. I mean, the thing that Moses had longed for on that fateful day, a lifetime ago, when he had tried to act as the avenger, now it's going to be writ large. It's not just one Hebrew delivered from oppression. It's all of them delivered from oppression. I wonder how God's going to do it. <laughs> no matter how he does it, Moses is thinking it's going to be amazing to see. And then God takes the deck and he flings them across the room and he looks at Moses and says, you pick them up. <laughs> Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. That you bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in one second, Moses becomes responsible for that whole huge mess. <laughs> now there are a world of things that could be said about a divine comedy like this. For one thing, it really fiddles with our ideas about leadership <laughs> and who's qualified to be a leader. 
and who God calls into leadership and how they get there. It really messes with the way we think about leadership. For another thing, it is a great reminder that God, as a rule, moves towards the broken, washed-up failures of the world. That's really good news, if we are being honest. But the thing that I want us to think about is that this, this is the thing that God does for Moses after he has exposed him. After Moses is exposed, God does not drag him through the years of shame. God does not drag him through the years of hiding. Instead, this is Moses' day of salvation, and on the day of his redemption, God gives Moses a job to do. A dangerous, fearful job. (laughs) And this is always how it works, church. God doesn't expose Moses so that he can get his theology straight. God doesn't expose Moses so he can sort out a bunch of facts in his head and make sure he has all his facts straight. God has saved Moses so that he can be the human being that he was created to be. So that he can do the work that he has been made to do in this world. And it is the same with us. We have not been redeemed to be cloistered into the warmth of our own thoughts, to get some facts straight in our head. Church, we have been redeemed for the life of the world. We have been redeemed to do the work that we were made for. Like we say it around here a lot, if we follow Jesus in repentance and faith, we are going to follow him into mission because he is not going anywhere else. That's where he's headed, into mission. So if we follow him, we will follow him into the work. We will share it with him. And when we do that work, listen, when we do that work, even if it's dangerous, even if it's fearful, we will come alive like we have never been alive before because it is what we have been made for. And that looks different for every one of us. You know, some of us may be called to Moses-level work, to this incredible, epic-changing work. Some of us will be called to quieter, more out-of-sight work, living out the values that we have, the things that we have, uh, that we believe in the day-to-day of our every life. Some of us will be called to things in between that stuff, but whatever it is, we can be sure that if we're following Jesus, we have been gifted, been gifted, and we have been called to work for the life of the world, to play our part in making the kingdom present here on earth as it is in heaven. We have been given a vocation in this world. So the question for people like us, every single one of us, is what is my work and am I doing it? There is no other way to follow Jesus. (laughs) The purpose of Moses' life has changed in an instant, and if we follow Jesus, ours has too. And I think people like us should think about this early, and we should think about it often. I have been given grace. Who am I becoming? Where am I heading? 
what is my responsibility for the good of the world? I have been given grace. Who am I becoming? Where am I heading? What is my responsibility for the good of the world? And if that seems, you know, too big, or it seems like something to be hesitant about, <laughs> let me assure you that you are not alone. You are in good company with Moses himself. I mean, as soon as Moses hears this, he strings together not one, not two, not three, not four, but he, he strings together five dodges of this call in his life. The very first one is the one that we read together. He asks, who am I? God, who am I, God, that I should go to Pharaoh? It's obviously not an existential question. He's using reason, and from a certain angle, he has a point. Here's a shepherd with a very sketchy past. Ordinary, at best, but unpromising is closer to true, and I understand that. Moses lives under the shadows and the shame of his failure. These things have crept in, and they have formed a part of his identity. I know what that feels like. Maybe you do too. The stuff that we're ashamed of, the stuff that we have failed at, sticks with us longer than the stuff we've done well or gotten right. It wounds us and it hobbles us. And church, listen, there's no use to pretend that stuff never happened or to excuse it or to explain it away. Because here's what we need. What we need after being forgiven is for another, stronger, more beautiful, more powerful reality to make its way into our lives and push the old realities out. Which is, of course, precisely what God does with Moses. The answer to Moses' question is, I'll be with you. <laughs> I can't tell you how great that sounds to me. God says, who are you? You're with me. <laughs> You're with me. <laughs> and I will be with you through everything that I have called you to do in this world. And this is incredibly good news for Moses. And when he eventually lives into it, and it takes a while, when he eventually lives into it, it changes everything. And we get the same good news when we follow Jesus in repentance and faith into the work that he is doing, that he has called us to do in this world through the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. We have been forgiven. And now this new, stronger, more powerful, more beautiful reality of who we are slips in and it pushes out the old ones. The old ones that dog us and shadow us, it pushes them out. And it says, who are we? We're with him. We are his sisters. And we are his brothers. We're with him. And his promise is as sure to us as it was to old Moses. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we ask together that you would use whatever means you have at your disposal, whatever kind of powerful, strange thing you, you want to do, please do it to, to form in us, to force into us this new, beautiful, powerful, formative reality of who we are. Father, sink it into our hearts deep as individuals and sink it into our heart deep as a church. Who are we? We are with you. And strengthen us through that to the work that you have called us to do for the life of the world, the work that we have been made for. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.